of the Survival Podcast. It's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is January the 20th, 2022, and we are up to episode 3020 of the Survival Podcast. It is time on a Thursday for an expert counsel Q&A show. Here's what we got lined up for you today. Great representation of the council. In the Ron Paul Liberty Highlights, Dr. Paul will talk about overcoming the fear of freedom. That's something I've talked about a lot myself, so I'm very interested to hear what Dr. Paul has to say. Dan McAdams talks about the major reversal on COVID policy in the UK. If you haven't heard this, I don't think you'll be shocked if you're a member of this audience because it goes right in with what I said at the very beginning of the month, and I even have a tweet to prove when I said it, Omicron is the end of COVID, and they're going to claim victory. Wait till you hear what's happening in the U.K. and soon to be Israel from Dan McAdams. Fits right in with that. And then Chris Rossini will talk about our sacred democracy and how it's always invoked and used to control people. And not his word, but I'm going to say that basically what he's saying is we need to be, we need to cease being seduced by this verbiage, like an incantation, a spell used to control people. Next up, John Pugliano will talk about incorporating the lithium into your investing, right? Uh, lithium is a huge part of our future. It's not going to stop being used. It is a rare element. It is hard to find, and maybe there's a way to profit from the coming future of lithium in industry. Sean Mills will talk about making smart design decisions for off-grid living. Derek Bonpietro will talk about, do you need to even stabilize your diesel fuel? And is there a good product for fuel injection cleaners on diesel products? Tim, the tool man cook, will talk about choosing a 30-degree frame, framing nailer, and specifically a cordless one, A you know, instead of using an air compressor. I happen to have the exact one he's recommending, and I love it. Um, Dr. Ken Berry will talk about dealing with acid reflux. The other doctor, Dr. Bones, will talk about sterilizing medical instruments. And I have a piece for you that I did as a live stream on YouTube on defining the difference in bullshit from the right and left and why it matters. Uh, and I got called out during this one, and you you guys won't hear where it happened because I was done with the segment, but I, I had a flat earther that wants to debate me. I'll tell you about that, and it looks like he's going to step up and debate. We'll see when we actually set the date and the time and the place, but I'm looking for a moderator. Yes, would you like to moderate a flat earth debate between Jack and somebody else? Would you like to do it? Do you feel qualified to be a moderator? I'll tell you all about that when we get to the close today. With that, let's go ahead and jump on into this. We're going to talk to, uh, we're going to hear from Ron Paul and his team with this week's highlights from the Ron Paul Liberty Report. People don't, uh, they don't have enough confidence in freedom. They're, they're, they're really, uh, one of the problems. They're afraid, uh, they've been conditioned for so many years now, probably in a way a hundred years that there was always going to be somebody to take care of us. And so the confidence isn't, isn't there until we have a confidence and full knowledge that living in a free society <clears throat> is a much better deal and a much better way to live with greater prosperity and greater liberty. There's, there's not, nothing is going to happen. People have to have a lot more confidence that liberty is a solution. It's not a problem. 
But the people who like to rip us off and pretend they're helping one group while they're pocketing all the money, uh, that's, that's another story. But uh, in spite of the uh, serious problems we have, <clears throat> I still believe this message is spreading. When I went to Congress in 76, nobody ever heard of Austrian economics, and, and there's been a lot of emphasis on sound economic policies. And even though the Keynesians and the big government people are still in charge, and they're really in charge of both political parties, there's, a, there's enough people out there. Just like COVID uh, and the problems and the mandates, we're getting a better uh uh, you know, approach to this because people are waking up and they're sick and tired of it. And they're, they're just not going to accept that without doing some resisting. That eventually is going to be what we have to do. We have to resist this authoritarianism that has turned into something very, very serious at the sacrifice of our liberties. And of course, the, the political component cannot be ignored. Johnson's in the fight for his life. While he was locking everyone else down, he was having booze parties uh, with his staff at his own house uh, out back, many of them uh, BYOB parties. So he's in the fight for his life there. Uh, he's also fighting against a changing uh, view of things, his unpopularity of having shut down in the first place. And so that's why he announced yesterday the end of Plan B, which is an end to all vaccine passports, an end to a, the mask requirements, um, the end for working from home. You actually got to go back to work. Of course, that only applies to the white collar workers. The, the, the lowly uh, blue collar workers always have to. It's a huge deal. And what it's, it, the implications for the, for, for Europe are huge. Places like France, Italy, Greece, if you don't have a vaccine, which we know doesn't work against the current strain of the virus. Even the CDC uh, has admitted if you don't have it, you're fined. You can't be a citizen. You can't, uh, you know, the president of France, you're a non-citizen if you don't have the shot. The implications are going to be used, but also a follow-up to Israel, which we've been talking about. The finance minister there has announced these vaccine passports make no sense and they should be scrapped. That's a senior, senior official in the Israeli government saying we got to stop this stuff. Democracy, as you were talking about, it's all about, when you think about democracy, how political authorities are picked. That's really it in a nutshell. And to people today, uh, largely because they've been schooled this way, it means everything. But what is far more important than how political authorities are picked is what those authorities can do. You know, go back to the Declaration of Independence, and when you read it, they spelled out one after another what the king was doing. He's doing this to us. He's doing this to us. And they're complaining that they, the king was taking away their liberties. Then when they formed the U.S. Constitution, it laid out, this is what the federal government can do. It can do this, it can do this, and this. If it's not in this Constitution, then it is left to the states. The federal government can do nothing. And then there's the Bill of Rights, which specified this is what government cannot do. They cannot infringe on freedom of speech and of religion and of gathering together. So look at what was important back then. They're not talking about how you're picking the political authorities, they were defining this is what government can do, this is what it cannot do. Yet when you look to, uh, talk to Americans today, 
they equate America with democracy, even though the word does not appear anywhere in any of the founding documents. They believe America equals <laughs> democracy, not liberty, but democracy. And that is has been a major, major downfall. We have to move away from so-called sacred democracy back to sacred liberty. I want to uh, add to, to, to Ron Paul's uh Part and I want to add to Chris Rossini's part. I'll let Dan McAdams's piece, as good as it was, uh, sit for itself. But those, the other two, I, I had certain thoughts when they came up. First of all, with Ron Paul, um, I completely agree, and I think that we can see this in animals. If, if you've ever kept an animal in a cage, especially if you've brooded ducks or chickens, this is a perfect example. When they've never been out of that containment. And you take them somewhere, and if you do not remove them, if you just open it so they can leave, it takes a while before they leave. And then when they leave, they stay close to the cage. I've done this with some of my caging that I use as chicken tractors for brooding young birds. And they'll stay very close to it, and they'll even go back into it. Even though it's a system of confinement, they, they crave its safety. And it takes time for them to adapt to, oh, look, freedom's not all that scary. We can go out. And this is the effect that it has on humans. And I think that what's happened is COVID became a cage. And it took this already bad thing with humanity fearing freedom, and it made it even worse. And if you think that the people that are in control of things didn't know that's what they were doing, I think you're just a bit naive. The second one that I wanted to hit on again was uh, Chris Rossini's. And the, the concept of like this sacred democracy, right? Is democracy is really the thing? And I agree. The Constitution was far more concerned with restrictions upon what government could and couldn't do than it was the means by which the people in government got into those positions. Though they were concerned about that, and, and we, you know, we have this debate. We don't have a democracy. We have a republic. We have a, a democracy in the form of a constitutional representative uh, republic, right? That's what we have. We have both. People that say the United States is not a democracy are actually saying the United States is not a pure democracy. It's a representative democracy in the form of a constitutional republic. And when you say something stupid like, we're a republic, not a democracy, you're demonstrating your ignorance of, of basically social studies and political science. Because you're, you're imagining that one is the exclusion to the other. There are over a hundred republics in the world. The most common form of government in the world is a republic. Some are constitutional republics. Uh, some are... Uh, Some take other forms, direct them like more of a democratic republic. There are even republics that are headed by a monarch, but then there's a government underneath them. There's a constitutional monarchy, but there's also a, a monarch-based republic. So republic is just it's just a way of explaining how a nation can be divided into member states, or you can call them in Swiss canons or provinces, and how there's certain autonomy within them, and then freedom of movement within those pieces, those regions within the total. I'm sorry, that's, that's the way that it works. And it creates a balance between local and central governance. That's the point. That's how it is. But my bigger issue here is not any of that, actually. It is the way that we are led with dog whistles, You know, like Pavlovian responses. 
with with these these basically these incantations. I consider this modern mysticism. Like some idiot can just be spouting crap, but when they say our democracy, everybody oh 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 oh, we got to preserve our democracy. We have to have our democracy. We, this is nonsensical. If you have taken over the apparatus of control, it doesn't matter what people are voted into the apparatus of control. You're still going to have the apparatus of control used against you. If you think, if you think that a senator has more power than a multi-billionaire today, I just think you haven't understood anything about what's going on. And 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 what ends up happening then is we can take these terms like we have to preserve our democracy. And they can be used to control both sides. We know exactly how the left is using that right now. We voter rights. But can't find anybody who couldn't vote. Not one person. Like, I tried to vote and they wouldn't let me. Not a single freaking person. But we're, the whole democracy is going to fall apart if we don't pass this law that we haven't had for almost 250 years of the existence of the republic. But we got to have it now or it's Jim Crow 2.0, right? You don't think that they're doing that to the right, though? Like, this is a threat to your democracy, right? That's, that's all. You hear this from both sides all the time. I'll save that for my anchor segment later. With that, let's hear from John Pugliano in Investing in Lithium. Hello, TSP. Today we've got an investing question. It comes from Sean in Pittsburgh. Shout out to everybody in western Pennsylvania. I grew up in the uh, Pittsburgh suburb called Monroeville. Sean, you probably know where that is. Now, as far as this question, Sean is interested in investing in lithium. He thinks that's going to be a big thing, you know, as we get more into electric vehicles and things. Um, he wants to be invested in this for the long term over, you know, the next decade or so. And he's looking for pure lithium plays, meaning that he doesn't necessarily want to invest in a mining company that also invests in other things. So, Sean, you have a really focused question here. I'm going to answer that and then I'll pile on after I answer your question and open it up to talk about some options that aren't specifically pure lithium plays. So as far as pure plays, I mean, I think the purest of the pure would be to invest directly in lithium itself. You know, like you could invest in GLD to own a physical gold ETF or, you know, there are silver ETFs, etc. Um, as far as I know, though, there is not any pure lithium ETF or or exchange-traded note that is only in the metal itself, lithium, and, you know, is either physical lithium or a derivative of a lithium future. Again, so as far as the best of my knowledge, there is not a pure ETF play like that. But if you do trade futures, you could go over to CME, and they do offer lithium futures. So you can do that. You just have to do it directly through the futures contracts, so that takes us to what is probably the next best pure play in lithium, and that would be investing in mining companies that only mine lithium. And to my knowledge, there are only two of those that are headquartered in the United States. I bring up, you know, being based out of the United States because I think from a transparency perspective and from not getting into an investment that could be a Ponzi scheme or a swindle, you're oftentimes much more better served if you stick with large company stocks that are based in the U.S. and listed on the major U.S. exchanges. And so as far as I know, there are two pure lithium mining companies that are listed on the exchanges in the U.S. The first one is called Levent, and uh, you say you're in Pittsburgh. I believe these guys are based out of 
Philadelphia over on the other side of the state. So um, Levent is a, is a fairly new company because it's a spinoff of a much older company, which is FMC. And that ticker symbol is LTHM. It's traded on the New York Stock Exchange. The other U.S.-listed pure lithium play would be Lithium Americas Corporation, ticker symbol LAC. This was originally a Canadian company. They onshored under the U.S., and I believe now they're incorporated out of Nevada. Now, if you want to go more riskier and go offshore, then there are, oh, I think a multitude, especially of junior, very small lithium miners across the globe, Remember, when you're dealing in something like that, it tends to be more of a penny stock. It can be highly speculative and a great deal of risk. Um, one of the better names that I know of, I believe it's pronounced Pilbara. They're an Australian company. You can buy their stock on the over-the-counter exchange. And I believe that ticker symbol was PLBF. Another one, and this is a big name, but it's a Chinese company. It's called Gangfen Lithium. But for me and my money, I would definitely be concerned about investing in anything in China right now. Um, the ticker symbol on that one is G-N-E-N-F. And again, you can find that. Uh, it's not on a main exchange, but you can buy that through the over-the-counter. So, Sean, as far as U.S.-based miners and uh, some of the bigger global miners that are pure-play lithiums, those are the four that I can think of. Now, to anybody else that kind of wants to jump on the lithium bandwagon and doesn't care if it's an absolute pure-play, Then there are plenty of other options. Albemarle, ticker symbol ALB, is a huge mining conglomerate. I believe they derive something like 35 or 40 percent of the revenue specifically from lithium. So they're not a pure lithium play, but they're also a much larger, bigger established company. Its market capitalization is probably more than 10 times the size of the uh, other American companies that I mentioned. So if you're looking to invest in lithium, but maybe you want something that might be a little more stable, that's a direction you can look at. And by the way, when I say stable, you know, we're talking about mining, extraction companies, commodity type companies. These are highly volatile, right? They all the time go through periods of feast and famine. So when I talk about stability, that's a relative term. And that's a segue that leads into another opportunity to invest in lithium without doing it directly, and that's by going to an ETF. The ETF that I own and have owned for, I don't know, many years, we've talked about this a long, long time ago on TSP, and that's the Global X Lithium and Battery Tech ETF. Ticker symbol is LIT. As an ETF, it doesn't invest in any one mining company. Uh, it does have a big position in, in LBA and then a lot of the others, the international ones, some of the smaller ones. Um, and it's not pure lithium miners. Uh, as the name implies, it's also investing in battery technology. So it owns shares in Samsung and some other companies. At one time, it had a very large position in Tesla. I think it still owns some Tesla stock, but... Uh, not to the large degree that it did at one time. So lithium ETF, that's LIT. And then to look at other investment options that still go along with the whole EV market, but not necessarily focused in lithium would be, you know, the general mining and extraction companies. And, you know, as we get into more electric vehicles, it's not only about lithium for batteries, but it's cobalt and it's copper and rare earth. And so, I mean, that whole mining and material segment has been a very strong performer last year. It's still performing well into this year. 
A mining company that I own and has done very well over the last year or so is a copper miner. That's Freeport McMoran. There are also large copper mining companies like Rio Tinto. I've owned them over the years. I, I currently don't have a position in that. Uh, again, these companies can be very volatile, but over the long run, and especially when you're in or headed into a commodity super cycle that it looks like perhaps we are right now, these companies do make a lot of money and their stock price reflects it. And to take this another step farther, if you want to go take advantage of a commodity super cycle, you don't necessarily have to invest in the mining company. You can look up and down the supply chain from that. And I think a really good derivative market that is benefiting from all the mining and extraction that's currently going on is a company like Caterpillar or Cummins Diesel. These, again, are big U.S.-based, old-established manufacturers. They're profitable. They have reasonable valuations and debt loads. They're not necessarily as risky as investing in the commodity itself or in the lithium or copper miners, but they do benefit from that trend because if you want to mine for resources, you can only do it with big, heavy equipment, and Caterpillar and Cummins Diesel are you know, big players in that type of industry. One final thing I want to comment on, and this is going along with the whole resource trade, but not necessarily with lithium and batteries and alternative energy and EVs, but that's looking at the old, established, traditional fossil fuel industry and a company like ExxonMobil. I've owned oil stocks for a number of years. People have asked me why I do that. You know, do I hate the environment or do I not understand that everything's moving to EVs? No, it isn't that at all. I don't hate the environment, but I do love money. And just because a particular industry or a sector isn't part of a huge mega trend, you know, that doesn't mean that they're going to totally go out of business overnight. And so fossil fuel companies, and in particular, a company like ExxonMobil has gotten really beaten down over the years, while at the same time, it had excellent cash flow, it was profitable, it had reasonable debt loads, it paid a substantial dividend. And now as we're coming out of COVID, we've seen a reopening of the economy, and there's been such a lack of investment in the carbon and fossil fuel energy sector, well, now the supply just can't keep up with the demand. And so now companies like ExxonMobil and Chevron and these other companies that are in the petroleum-based businesses are really on fire. I mean, ExxonMobil is not only starting out this year doing very well, but over the last 15 months, it's up something like, I don't know, in excess of 100%. I bring all this up just to say that when it comes to investing, it's always wise to be diversified and to not only look at the big trends that everybody's talking about, but also to dig down in the economy and see where the real value and the real money is being made. So, hey, as always, thanks for your questions. This is strictly my opinion, not offering any specific investment advice. Until the next time, this is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealth Studying Podcast. Next up, let's hear from Sean Mills on making smart design decisions with housing that's either going to be off-grid or maybe use some off-grid components like solar panels. Hey, everyone. This is Sean Mills with HackMySolar.com, and I've got an expert panel question to answer from Chris. Chris says, question for Sean Mills. If you had an architect designing a homestead from scratch, what considerations would you ask them to include for the house for future solar power? The house does not need to be entirely off-grid, but long-term, I would want it. What's a good roof slope to start with or materials or weight? 
Do I need to allocate a nearby room for my battery bank? Would love to hear things you noticed from experience to wish your clients had put in to make the install more ideal. Thanks, Chris LP from alt-ark.com. Chris, uh, I would start by designing the home to need the least amount of electricity, right? So I always talk about, um, you know, what is the saying? An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Uh, in solar, the prevention is really reducing the needs for the house. Uh, so in the USA, the top seven users of electricity in a standard home take 74% of the energy need, and nothing outside of that top seven takes even 2% as a category, and that's according to EIA.gov. So I'm going to run through those uh, top seven and ideas of how you could design a home to reduce the amount of electricity needed uh, to address those. So here are the big ones. 32% of all residential electricity use in the U.S. is either heating or cooling spaces, all right? So air conditioning or heat. Therefore, other than the obvious need for good insulation, if we can design a home from the ground up to minimize the need for this, we make a major impact on whether the home is on solar. We make a major impact whether the home is on solar or not. Moving air, utilizing the thermosiphon effect, as well as utilizing geothermal energy are great ways to do this. In cooling climates, we talk about um, ground contact as a way to take advantage of geothermal energy. Uh, designing the home for solar thermal gain in a heating climate or for minimizing solar gain in a cooling climate also helps. Um, the, biggest, the next biggest usage of electricity is hot water. Uh, so best strategies for this would be using an on-demand system and even potentially preheating the water before it gets into the heater. Uh, anytime there's a possibility, I suggest natural gas or propane on-demand hot water heaters versus electrical. Uh, they're more efficient per cent of input. Um, the next biggest category is lighting. So maximizing natural light, specking LED light fixture, fixtures, and uh, only lighting where we need illumination rather than the whole house, inside and out, are strategies for this. So doing something as simple as putting a small reading light or sconce um, that's in the wall where the bed is going to go uh, allows for us to use a small amount of light rather than lighting the entire room with multiple fixtures potentially, uh, you know, when we're laying in bed or reading a book, for example. Um, so the next one is refrigerators. Uh, a built-in high-efficiency refrigerator with additional insulation or even a propane fridge are potential options to help with this. There are several refrigerators that uh, are specifically meant for off-grid homes, um, even going with the idea of a chest-type refrigerator versus uh, the door refrigerator is an option. Uh, those are things that I would definitely look into if I was building a home from scratch. Uh, don't place the fridge on an exterior wall. Uh, if you can help it, uh, put the fridge, again, in an enclosed, it, uh, additionally insulated area on an interior wall. Uh, the next category is TV and entertainment related, which I say, you know, it's not really a design consideration, but put that whole system on a smart plug and set up a schedule to turn it off and keep it off when you aren't using it. And the last is closed drying. So again, uh, not really a uh, architectural design consideration uh, unless you wanted to put in some sort of neat, um, you know, 
built-in uh, hang uh, rack next to a wood-burning stove or something like that that kind of folds in and out of the wall would be a neat way to, to do that. So, uh, you know, the other thing would be if it's a house that's going to have propane or natural gas uh, to spec a gas dryer. Uh, outside of that, you know, hang drying on the line is the best way. Uh, it needs no electricity. Uh, so those are all ways to reduce energy use, which, again, is where we always want to try to start. As for designing the house for future solar, um, if I'm going to go with roof mount, I would go ahead and try to get a south-facing slope around a 612 pitch. Uh, that's like 27.8 degrees, and um, it's not perfect pitch, but it's one that's going to work with pre-made trusses. Uh, so you're not going to have additional carpentry and lumber cost to build custom roof trusses just so that you get a couple more degrees. Um, I would go with a metal roof to reduce the likelihood of being, being able um, or having to, you know, remove the array to replace, replace roof shingles in the future. So metal roof, I think, is typically has like a 50-plus year lifespan versus roof shingles, which are 25 to 30. Um, and then uh, I would try to keep shade off of that south-facing slope by strategically placing vent pipes, chin, chimneys, etc., on the northern or other slope away from the southern slope. So you don't want your chimney uh, shading your uh, solar panels in the morning, for example. Uh, now, in southern climates, it might be a much better idea to shade the roof and to put the solar array on a ground mount on the other side of the shade. Um, you know, this opens you up to do whatever the customer wants in terms of dormers, you know, chimneys, et cetera, while reducing solar gain, which increases uh, cooling bills. So obviously, if we've got a wide open uh, roof and uh, it's just getting pounded all day with that southern sun um, in a cooling climate, which is a climate where we have more cooling days than heating days, um, then, you know, in those scenarios, it might make a lot more uh, sense to shade the roof and not put the panels up there. If for reference, um, single family detached dwellings in the south, so if you divide the south into, or if you divide the country into south, east, west, and midwest, uh, or central, um, and then you look at single family attached versus single family detached apartments, um, mobile homes, and then look at all homes as a cohort. A single-family detached dwelling in the south is the biggest cohort of electricity users, um, higher than the average for the whole country and higher than any other uh, type of house in or in any other area, uh, followed immediately by mobile homes in the south and then in single-family attached homes in the south. So it's air conditioning that's driving this is what I'm telling you. Um, another consideration is going to be the requirements for installing the DC runs and the inverter. So the solar panel is going to generate DC. Um, it's going to run through a combiner box or sometimes directly to uh, the inverter, which will convert it into AC. And then that goes either into your breaker box or uh, to the meter, just depending on the local requirements. Uh, so I would make sure there's space on the wall near the breaker box for the inverter and a quick disconnect. Um, I'd go ahead and run conduit for the DC run from the panels to the inverter area, and I would go ahead and have it labeled in accordance with applicable um, NEC code. So uh, National Electric Code, there's like four different versions depending on what part of the country you're in that are that, are, that have been adopted, uh, and they have slightly different requirements for uh, even something as simple as how to label a conduit that uh, a DC run is going in. Uh, so I would have that done while the house was being built. 
Um, and if it's a, in a tough spot, I might go ahead and install the DC disconnect and combiner box as well. So then all I have to do is land, um, you know, my inputs from the uh, panels and then, you know, the run basically from the disconnect all the way to the inverter is already done. Um, if you do this, it becomes very easy. You just mount the panels to wire them into the combiner box as necessary through the DC disconnect. Uh, do the table cable pulls to the inverter. Then you got a real short AC run from the inverter to the breaker box. Uh, batteries should not take up a ton of space. You know, they can go right in the same area. As a matter of fact, you want them to be right in the same area as the inverter. Um, I would definitely, again, as I've mentioned multiple times over the past 18 months, go with lithium iron phosphate. I can tell you um, the one that I ordered last year to try to get ahead of the crunch still hasn't arrived. Uh, Allegedly, it was shipped last week, so uh, hopefully that thing gets in here soon so I can flip the off-grid homestead over to lithium iron phosphate. Uh, But there are still some supply chain issues. So the other thing you want to talk to your customer about, if they want to do any of this installation of the solar-specific components, uh, panels are easy to get, inverters and, and batteries um, and, and charge controllers. Uh, they're not hard to find, but you're limited in what you can when you can get. So you don't have as much diversity in uh, choices. So that's my answer for today, guys. Thanks for getting the question in. Send some more in. I'll keep getting them answered. Great stuff from Sean. And I, and I would kind of go back to where he started being the most important, and I think this is most important for retrofitting, too. Start with efficiency. If I want to live off grid, I, there there really is no problem that money can't solve, right? If I put enough money in, I can put up enough panels and windmills or geothermal that I can in fact do anything. I, I could run a welder night and day if I really wanted to if I spend enough money. But since money is a limited resource. And we don't necessarily want to spend more money on solar panels than the entire rest of the property. And maybe we'd like some acreage instead of living in a little igloo that we can afford to do really high energy things in. We want to, 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 to get as much efficiency as we can. So even when you move into a home and you're thinking, I want to go off grid here and I didn't get to build it from the beginning. I mean, the first thing is you need to look at insulation. Do you have gaps? Things like that. And I think that's a place that people just sell right over so frequently. Uh, and that's probably more important than roof slope and roof angle to a degree. I think that the bigger thing with roofs is eaves and blocking sun when you want sunblock and letting sun in when you want sun because heating and cooling is an extreme energy demand that we have on modern housing. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, hear next from Derek Pietro. On diesel fuel, diesel fuel storage, diesel fuel additives, uh, cleaning injectors, etc. And I'll admit, I didn't feel like do it. I could have done this, but I didn't feel like it. So I kicked it to Derek. Uh, Derek, take it away. Happy 2022, TSP listeners. Derek here from AffordableDCGenerators.com, home of the affordable but slightly backordered DC power supply solution. I do apologize. I've got a couple of inquiries, but unfortunately, the pieces to make the kits are sporadically going on intergalactic back order, so that has definitely affected my ship times. But uh, if you're interested in a kit, please sit tight. They are coming a couple of weeks out, but we'll get the ball rolling shortly here. All right, first question of the year comes from Jerry about diesel fuel. Jack, can you recommend a diesel fuel additive for anti-gelling, injector cleaner, and an additive that will act like a diesel fuel stabilizer? And how often should I use these products? 
Details. I have a 2017 Kubota Tractor BX2370 with a 0.9 liter, 23 horse, three cylinder diesel. I live in Michigan and it gets pretty cold here, currently 10 degrees and the tractor is stored in an unheated barn. Thanks for all you do, Jerry. All right, Jerry, let's, uh, let's get the easy one right out of the way. Diesel fuel stabilizer, completely unnecessary. Diesel stays very stable and basically as long as you can keep it clean and dry, i.e. no moisture contaminants inside of the container, you're good. <laughs> Think about it. Your home heating oil tank, even though it sits inside, you know, that fuel sits for months, if not the whole year, waiting for next winter sometimes. So don't worry about it. Diesel fuel will last a very long time just by itself without any additive. All right, for the other two, these are really two complete separate types of situations we're handling with additives, but some additives will take care of both. But Individual additives will do either job better than one that will do both combined. Now, I don't know much about your tractor, so I had to do a little research. It looks like you've got a very basic mechanically injected diesel. So that means that there's just a pump on the side of the engine block that's driven off the front cover. And it's got three lines, one for each injector. And you've got a fuel line that goes into it. And there's all kinds of trickery and magic that injects the fuel at a high pressure through each line when it's firing each cylinder. And that's it. doesn't look like there's any emissions components on it. It's a very basic system that goes back to the day of Rudolph Diesel creating the diesel engine hundreds of years ago. So we don't have any kind of emissions components to worry about. We're just straight up worrying about the fuel and then the injection system. So as far as gelling goes, now gelling has to do with the cloud point of the fuel. Diesel fuel is is paraffin-based or wax-based, so when it reaches a certain temperature, it actually starts to turn into a gel instead of being in liquid form. And number one diesel, or winter diesel, so to speak, gels around negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit. That doesn't mean that the fuel that's in your tractor is going to gel at that temperature because the fuel that's in your tractor might be from the summer blend of fuel or might be fuel that you bought in summer, stored in a can, and then just put in your tractor. I don't know how much fuel turnover you have, but basically what I'm getting at is unless you really know the fuel in your tractor is winter blend fuel, you really don't know the cloud point until the engine doesn't start in the wintertime. So one recommendation recommendation is to just make sure that you have winter blend fuel. So you're getting it from a place that has high turnover. It's cold out. They're going to have winter blend in the tanks. So what you put in the tractor is going to be winter blend. Now that doesn't also mean that I would run the tractor at negative 40 without an additive, but that's what it's quote unquote rated to go down to. Now, as far as an injector cleaner goes, one thing we really more want to focus on more is instead of a cleaner, more of a lubricator. So the diesel components are very, very tight tolerances. And especially when we put a quote unquote dry fuel like this ultra low sulfur diesel that is now forced to be sold at the pump, you're basically running these components with a lack of lubricity. So the, the components are lubricated by the fuel even though, they're have such, even though they have such tight tolerances, but the diesel nowadays is just shit, unfortunately. So putting an additive in, additive in is highly recommended. I run it through everything that burns diesel fuel that I own. So we want to have something that adds lubricity to the fuel, and a lot of additives will do it. Some will do it better than others. Some of them actually uh, decrease the lubricity from stock diesel fuel. So you definitely want to read some reports, but two recommendations that will do both of these really well is Hot Shot and the Stanodyne 
additive. Uh, Hotshot has a whole bunch of different products, but they are highly recommended. If you look up a bunch of reviews, they will do both lowering the cloud point of the fuel and increase lubricity of the fuel, and they do both of those really well. Of course, you're going to pay for that. The other one is the Stanodyne. Stanodyne makes injection pumps for diesel engines, so they should probably know what they're talking about, and they make a good additive as well. Both of those you may not find locally on a shelf. Your best bet is probably just get them online. Now, I use Power Service Diesel Clean. That's the gray bottle. It's just a fuel supplement, and it's not really strongly suited to lower the uh, cloud point of the fuel. It's just a good lubricity editor and overall fuel maintenance item. It's cheap. You can get it anywhere, Walmart, gas station, uh, tractor supply, all those all those places will have it. It's readily available. You can get a nice little bottle or big bottle, whatever. And it, the point is that it doesn't do the best job compared to other products, but it does a good job, and it's cheap. But I'm not worried about gelling because, one, my truck doesn't go out in negative 40 degrees for sure, nor does it touch road salt. So I'm not so concerned about fuel gelling. You know, once the snow hits, that truck is stored away. But if you're worried about that, I would probably avoid that product. The the power service, uh, Diesel 911, which is specifically formulated to lower the cloud point, has not tested well. And I wouldn't trust the other products that they make in the white or the gray bottle to lower the cloud point. So I personally would look at the other two. If you were just looking for an overall additive, that's probably the easiest and cheapest one that's going to do an okay job. But since you're worried about running your tractor in Michigan in the wintertime, I'd probably look elsewhere to the other products personally. Now, where am I getting this information? Well, there's a lot of online reviews, and these aren't just like, well, oh, I prefer this product over that product because I'm sponsored by them. These people are actually doing freezing tests of the fuel and seeing if what the poor points are. They are running them in a machine that actually grinds a piece of metal to see how much metal is taken off of the specimen in order to check the lubricity of the fuel with the additive. So these are scientific tests, and those two particular products always come out on top. So that's why I recommend them. How often should you be using these products? Well, I'm assuming you're not burning thousands of gallons of fuel in your tractor, so I would use them all the time, and I wouldn't skip on it. You're not going to go through a ton of product because you're only adding a couple of ounces per you know, fuel tank load. And again, your tractor's small, so it's not like it has a 100-gallon fuel tank. So I would just always have some product on hand. And when you're putting fuel in the tractor, I would be dosing the fuel accordingly. Other things we can be looking at with a tractor or any kind of vehicle with an engine stored outside in the wintertime, and we want this thing to run and start up even in the coldest of temperatures, block heater, oil heater. So look into some of those products so we can preheat the coolant and we can warm the oil pan or sometimes if there's not an oil pan on the block they have one that can like thread into the drain plug or whatever you can look this up or Kubota might even sell that in an accessory catalog but you're going to heat the oil heat the coolant so that way when you go to fire it up everything's at temperature ready to rock and roll and you don't have to let the thing idle really badly and, and making really wretched sounds for 20 minutes before you can use it just click the key and go so those are two good accessories that you can install on there that are probably fairly easy to do. And, you know, you plug it in, couple, give it a couple of hours to warm up while you're drinking your coffee, and then you go out and just fire your tractor up. What I also saw on your tractor is that it has like a basic inline fuel filter. That's like the little plastic canister with the two nipples that just goes inline on the hose. That's junk. That was junk back in the 1960s and 70s and 80s when that was used. So I would recommend a proper spin-on fuel filter. This is a modification. You know, you might not find a shop that'll do it. You might have to do it yourself. But it looks like there's a lot of people that have write-ups online. 
And that's just putting a proper fuel filter. So that's a head, which is basically the mounting point for the filter where you're going to put your fuel barbs in there so you can slide your fuel hose on. And then you're going to spin the filter on. I mean, Raycor, which is big in the Marine. I really don't care for Raycor, but they're a huge name. Or Stanodyne makes FM filters, their filter series. Everybody has a filter design that you can buy. You can get one with a clear bottom so you can see moisture and you can drain it. It's an endless, endless uh, accessory that you can research on your own. But if you get a proper spin-on filter and get that put on the tractor, you can get one with a primer pump. So that way, basically, when you change the filter... You can use the hand primer on the filter head to bleed the air out so you can fire the engine up. You can get them with sensors that will detect water in the fuel when there's enough water at the bottom of the filter. You can even get them with heaters so that way it will protect the fuel in the filter from clouding when it's operating at cold temperatures. That's usually the first point it clouds when you're trying to push that cold fuel through the filter. It tends to gel at cold temperatures. So putting a preheater in there will keep the filter element itself warm or they actually make sleeves that will go around the outside of the filter. It kind of just looks like an oil filter, so you can get a, the appropriate size sleeve that just slides over that and keeps it warm, or the filter manufacturer will probably sell one that actually threads into the filter head. But that's a whole other conversation, but I would recommend doing a filter upgrade and get, getting a proper filter on your tractor to avoid these problems. All right, Jerry, thanks for the question. For you guys listening, get some questions into me. Let's kick the new year off right with a whole bunch of material. Look forward to them. Thanks, guys. Take care. All right, good stuff from Derek, and I appreciate him taking that one for me. And uh, next up, we have a question about a cordless framing nailer, and I will tell you uh, that at least one of the ones that uh, Tim recommends I own and I love. Hey, guys, Toolman Tim coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back to answer another question for the expert council, so let's dive right in. This week's question comes from Carlos in Hot Springs, and he says, Tim, I'm looking at purchasing a battery-powered framing hammer. Do you have any recommendations? Details. I have a six-acre homestead, and some of my projects are spread out, and it can be difficult to get a generator and air compressor to some parts of the property. I'd like a 30-degree framing nail gun for some projects that could handle bigger projects down the road. I'm leaning toward the DeWalt DCN692M1. But I'm also open to suggestions. I do not have any other battery-powered tools, so I'd be starting off. So I'd like a brand that I can use batteries on a bunch of different tools. Thanks, Carlos. So for years, Carlos, if you were looking for a good cordless framing nailer, the only thing that was available was the gas battery combination, mainly made by Passload. Those things were reliable. They needed some extra special care at times. They were heavy. And again, they required both a battery and a gas cylinder. And back in my tool selling days, I always thought, wow, the person, the company that comes out with a cordless framing nailer is going to be, you know, a genius. And DeWalt come out with a 16 gauge, uh, cordless finish nailer. And it was, it was awesome. I thought, here we go. We're heading in the right direction. Well, now, you know, flash, fast forward a decade later, DeWalt and Milwaukee both have incredible. There's a bunch of different options out there. Uh, if you're looking, the ones to look at to start with are DeWalt and Milwaukee. They're nearly identical in price and quality. Of course, my experience comes from the DeWalt platform. However, it seems to be a flip of a coin with most pros on which one they prefer. And another option out there right now is Rigid. Um, you know, up in Canada, it's mainly at Home Depot, but they're available in a bunch of places and they have an incredible warranty on their batteries. 
So let's get started. Since you have no batteries, we're going to focus on just the kits and not the bare tools. The DeWalt kit right now is 370 on Amazon, comes with the nailer, a fairly impressive 4 amp hour battery, the charger, and a throwaway cloth carrying kit. The Milwaukee kit right now is 400 bucks at Home Depot, and it comes with the nailer, a charger, an even more impressive 5 amp hour battery, and the same throwaway cloth uh, carrying bag. Finally, the Rigid kit comes with a nailer, a charger, a 4 amp hour battery, and an extended capacity magazine. But the problem is that the price is just under $550 at Home Depot right now. And these are all US dollar prices. Typically, the Rigid stuff is cheaper, but in this case, not so. Uh, you know, if it were just the lifetime warranty on the batteries and the price was cheaper than the DeWalt or the Milwaukee, I'd say go with the Rigid. But in this case, the price is, it, it, they price themselves out of the market. Now that may come down, who knows? But now, as far as how do you choose between DeWalt and Milwaukee? If you're looking at branching out, pardon the pun, into yard care and yard tools, right now I really feel like DeWalt has the advantage in both quality and um, various types of tools that are available. Uh, now, if you're into just straight carpentry tools, like circular saws, drills, the whole works, most pros and most guys doing reviews right now give the edge to Milwaukee. And I have to say, I kind of agree with them. They've kind of um, moved beyond where DeWalt was with a lot of their carpentry tools. However, one really cool thing that DeWalt just brought out that may change your mind a little bit is the new battery technology they just released. It's called PowerStack, and it really seems to be a bit of a game changer. Uh, they adopted this technology from the RC car market, and now instead of taking round 18650 uh, cylindrical batteries and putting them into a power pack, they're using stacked pouches, which allows for a smaller lighter, but way more powerful battery. The pricing on them looks pretty good too. And the independent tests that I've watched from uh, third-party reviewers, they honestly, the power that those batteries pack is incredible for the size of them. So, you know, one or the other, again, it's a bit of a flip of a coin. One other thing I wanted to touch on is you mentioned that you wanted a 30-degree nailer. And if people aren't familiar with framing nailers, uh, there's really two big ones on the market. 30-degree nails, tend to be paper collated, and the 21-degree nails are plastic collated. Each have their advantages and disadvantages, the main being that the plastic can handle being in rain and dampness a fair bit longer, obviously. <laughs> However, uh, the paper nails come in a size between 30 and 34 degree, and that means that most framing nailers that are 30 degree will take any one of those sizes and pretty much every single nail manufacturer or big box store carries some type of those paper collated nails, which means you're going to have better availability and a significantly less expensive product for the most part. So, you know, like I said, it always depends on which one really the top two front runners right now are the DeWalt and the Milwaukee. I'll include links to all three products for Jack, uh, for Amazon and Home Depot for what I could find. And yeah, let me know, Carlos, what you ended up choosing. I, I hope that really helps. And guys, if you want to know more about what I'm up to, the easiest way is to run by toolmantim.co uh, and check out the monthly newsletter. And of course, come by the live stream, the workshop live. We're now doing it twice a week, Thursday and Sunday evening, 7 Mountain, 9 Eastern, I love the interaction from the community. So if you have time to drop by, come by, ask a question, share your knowledge, and we'll learn together. 
And guys, as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. So I, I have to say the only thing that would get me to go with Rigid over DeWalt is what Tim kind of mentioned in passing there. And it, it, it can be in of itself, if it wasn't for some of the new technology coming from DeWalt, worth going with Rigid. And I, I have, and I, I love DeWalt. I own DeWalt. It's my personal choice and I haven't changed. And I had a chance to change when I went from the old 18 volt to the new 20 volt. And I didn't. So that tells you where my, my brand loyalty lies. But I have a couple friends that are professional contractors in one way or the other, and most of them use Rigid because of the battery warranty. Now, these are people that are buying you know, dozens of sets of tools at a time. We're talking people with crews all over the country in some instances. So they're going to have battery failures. And the battery failures and the Rigid warranty is enough to make it to where they tend toward Rigid for the battery warranty alone. And they consider the tools as good or close enough to as good to make it worth doing that. On the Milwaukee DeWalt, what Tim said at the end I think is incredibly important. And my, my kind of, you know, crystal ball looking at Milwaukee and DeWalt is that DeWalt is the company that is going to do the most new things. And that they have learned their lesson in changing batteries as far as footprint. You can change the battery's technology without changing its footprint. So when they went to the new battery format, there was no real need to go to a new fit and of the battery. They could have built lithium-ion batteries that were 18 volts that went straight into the old tools, and they didn't do it, and they basically screwed the people in their installed base, myself included. And we loved our tools so much, we stuck with them anyway. But they did lose some business, and I don't think they're going to do it again. So as they develop these new batteries, they are going to be rearward compatible with the existing line of 20-volt and the 60-volt flex-volt tools. And so... I would personally steer you toward DeWalt. And as far as the nail gun, it's the one I own. The exact one that Tim mentioned, It's a link, there's a link to it in the show notes, along with the Milwaukee and the Rigid. I own it. I have owned it for two years, and I have never taken the time to review it and put it on T-Spaz, and I should. Uh, but I love it, and it has made my life better by owning it. With that, let's go ahead and do our next one. Uh, we're going to hear now from Dr. Ken Berry on acid reflux. Hello, Jack and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry, family physician, answering a question today from Frank. Frank says, I recently developed a bad case of acid reflux. I've never had this issue before. Before resorting to medications, what are some home natural remedies that you would suggest? I'm 58 and in excellent health. I'm experiencing a sore throat. It has affected my voice and I'm clearing my throat constantly. Good question, Frank. It does sound like you've had an acute flare-up of reflux or heartburn or GERD. Uh, the, the most common things that are going to help this acutely is uh, I think it's perfectly fine to take a few days of Tums, uh, which is a magnesium-based uh, antacid. I would highly recommend you get some apple cider vinegar, the real kind with the mother at the bottom, that cloudy stuff. Uh, taking a swig of that almost always will clear up your reflux symptoms for a few hours. Uh, and, and then if you're, if you're drinking any alcohol, I'd avoid that for a few days. Definitely avoid tobacco, avoid soft drinks, whether sugar-free or not, and avoid fruit juices. That's going to give your esophagus 
a chance to heal. And I wanted to use Frank's question to dive a little deeper into this. Uh, there are many people out there suffering from chronic heartburn, reflux, GERD. And I just wanted to give you guys a heads up. I'm working on a YouTube video about this right now, but it is very, very unhealthy to take acid blockers on a daily basis for years and years and years. Uh, taking acid blockers like Zegrid or Prilosec or Prevacid or Omeprazole uh, can increase your risk of vitamin B12 deficiency, magnesium deficiency, calcium deficiency. It can increase your risk of Alzheimer's dementia. It can increase your risk of infections like pneumonia. It can increase your risk of, of developing C. diff or uh, Clostridium difficile infection in your in your gut, which is very, very bad. You don't want that. It can increase your risk of renal disease. Uh, your risk of having a heart attack, your risk of developing osteoporosis, and also just increase your overall risk of dying. Uh, All-cause mortality goes up for people who take a daily proton pump inhibitor, like the ones I mentioned earlier. Uh, just any, any cause of death, your risk is going to go up. So if you have a bleeding ulcer or a duodenal ulcer or you have Barrett's esophagus, esophagus you may need a proton pump inhibitor, an acid blocker for a few weeks or even a couple of months. But if you just have reflux, heartburn, uh, GERD symptoms, you've got to convert to eating a very low carbohydrate diet. There's actually quite a bit of research showing that this decreases heartburn, reflux symptoms tremendously. And then if you need uh, some daily apple cider vinegar to help with symptoms, that's totally fine. If you need to take occasional Tums, uh, that's totally fine. But as you decrease your carbohydrate intake, you're going to notice your reflux symptoms get better and just don't ever come back. Hope this helps. This is Dr. Barry. Talk to you next time. So this uh, response is from a bit ago. I get so many questions for Ken, and he so, what he'll do is I won't hear from him for a couple of weeks, and then I'll get like eight answers in one go. So I thought maybe he had this video up. If he does, the one he referenced, he had. I, I wasn't able to find it yet. Um, and so when I, if I hear from him and he publishes that, I'll make sure you guys know about it. I wanted to add something I've heard Ken say before, and I completely agree with that he really didn't say in this th this one. The thing about using any kind of acid blocker or even an antacid like Tums or something like that on an ongoing basis is you're trying to neutralize or prevent the acid in your stomach, and you're doing it in your stomach. Your stomach has no problem with acid. Heartburn is called heartburn because we get it in our esophagus because the acid in our stomach comes up through the sphincter at the top of the stomach because of reflux, right, and ends up in the esophagus where it doesn't belong. If we neutralize the acid in our stomach, what we, we end up with is we do not have the right pH in our stomach for proper digestion of food. It's supposed to be acid in our stomach. So you're changing your biochemistry counter to the way it's supposed to work. That's part of why this is so dangerous. And I also kind of want to point out that a lot of times, if you start relying, if you have like a very rare occasional thing and you pop a couple Tums 
right? No big deal. But what I've found is when I've experienced this problem, if I start using Tums, it just you can end up becoming dependent on them. And when you stop taking them, it ends up being worse than it was because your stomach's like, oh, shit, I can finally do this. And now you've upset things. So I would be really uh, cautious with the use of any antacid, any acid blogger, anything like that, unless you really need it. And then you always want to know if, if you're doing it with a doctor. So what's our plan to not do this forever? Because doing it forever is bad. And I would ask your doctor, okay, if we're going to do this forever, then how am, am I going to digest food the way my body's supposed to when the pH in my stomach has been raised up from the acid level that it's at? And they won't have a good answer because there isn't one. Anyway, with that, let's hear from Doc Bones on sterilizing medical instruments. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find 1,200 articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author of the brand new fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, now available at Amazon and at store.doomandbloom.net. Many of the medical items in your storage, like instruments and some dressings, may come already sterile. In survival, though, dressings are consumed and sterile instruments become dirty. This leads to the question of how to sterilize your reusable items and produce a store of sterile supplies off the grid. There are a number of ways that you can accomplish this goal. Simply placing them in gently boiling water for about 30 minutes would be a reasonable strategy, but may not eliminate some stubborn bacterial spores and could cause issues with rusting over time, especially on sharp instruments like scissors or knives. By the way, you should always disinfect scissors and, let's say, clamps in the open position. Soaking in chlorine solutions, sodium or calcium hypochlorite, for 15 to 30 minutes in a 10% chlorine solution will disinfect instruments. Any longer, however, and you risk rusting. Some recommend adding a teaspoon of baking soda to slow down deterioration. Always rinse instruments in sterilized water, by the way, after soaking. Soaking in 70% isopropyl alcohol, rubbing alcohol, for 30 minutes is another option. Some will even put instruments in a metal tray with alcohol and then ignite them. Although I don't recommend this method, it or even fire itself, if it were evenly distributed, will do the job, but eventually causes damage to the instruments. Be aware that this can be quite dangerous and should always be undertaken outdoors. You might consider soaking your instruments in chemical solutions that are specifically made for the purpose of high-level disinfection, although not necessarily sterility. This is done in the absence of heat, something very important if you have items that are made of plastic. A popular brand is Cydex OPA, a trade name for a solution with thylaldehyde or glutaraldehyde as the active ingredient. For basic disinfection, insert the instruments in a tray with the solution for about 20 minutes. Soaking overnight, 10 to 12 hours, gives an acceptable level of near sterility for survival purposes. There are Cydex test strips available which identify if the solution has retained its effectiveness. If it's still potent, the solution can actually be reused for up to two weeks. As an alternative, some have recommended using 6 to 7.5% hydrogen peroxide for 30 minutes. Hydrogen peroxide, by the way, in household form is only about 3%. Ovens are an option if you have power. For a typical oven, metal instruments are placed wrapped in aluminum foil or placed in metal trays. The oven is then heated to 400 degrees Fahrenheit for 30 minutes, or alternatively 320 degrees Fahrenheit for 2 hours. During the pandemic mass shortage, some have advocated dry oven heat at 160 degrees Fahrenheit for about 30 minutes as a method to re-sterilize scarce disposable masks. 
Although ovens and microwaves have been used to sterilize instruments, probably the best way to guarantee sterility in an austere setting is a pressure cooker. Hospitals use a type of pressure cooker called an autoclave that uses steam to clean surgical towels, bandages, scrubbed instruments, and other items. All modern medical facilities clean their equipment with this type of device. Having a pressure cooker or canner will allow you to approach the level of sterility required for minor surgical procedures. Using a pressure cooker to sterilize instruments goes as follows. Wash and scrub instruments to remove any visible debris and allow them to dry. Then wrap them in aluminum foil. Remember, clamps and scissors should be in open position. Place a wire stand or steamer basket on the bottom of the pot. Another option to to prevent water from touching the foil-wrapped instruments is to use an uncovered mason jar to hold them. Add one or two inches of plain water to the pot. Run the pressure cooker at about 15 to 20 PSI for at least 20 minutes. Allow everything to cool gradually, then safely allow the steam to escape and let instruments dry and cool inside the cooker. Once cool and dry, place the foil-wrapped instruments inside plastic bags for storage purposes. Pressure cookers, if used incorrectly, can cause severe burn and scalding injuries. Be sure to have a working knowledge and some experience using them, and don't forget to read your manual. Also, pressure cookers aren't easy to lug from place to place, so it's best for those who plan to stay in place in disaster scenarios. A significant development in the quest to put together a portable and reliable method to sterilize instruments comes from a study commissioned by the military. The study, which was published in the journal Wilderness and Environmental Medicine, explored the use of UVC light as a survival medical tool. In this study, instruments were contaminated with MRSA and other bacteria, then scrubbed with chlorhexidine hippoclens for 30 seconds and dried with a sterile gauze 4x4 pad. Then a UVC wand was passed within 4 inches over the instruments for about 45 seconds, trying to cover as much of the surface of the instruments as possible. Evaluation afterwards revealed a 100% reduction of bacteria and achieved levels of sterilization acceptable for immediate use in the field. If the instruments were not used right away, rapid vacuum sealing extended the life of sterility. Indeed, UV light has long been considered to be lethal to viruses as well as bacteria. It works by damaging viral DNA or RNA. Most viruses have one or the other, but not both. With a damaged genetic code, replication is more difficult, and most viruses are deactivated. We hesitate to say killed because it's really not certain whether viruses technically meet the definition of life. Not just any UV radiation will do. Sunlight contains various types of UV light, UVA, UVB, and UVC. The vast majority of UV radiation, 95%, reaching the surface of the planet is UVA, or ultraviolet A. It's capable of penetrating into the deep layers of the skin and considered to be the main cause of age-related skin changes such as wrinkles and spots. UVB comprises about 5% of ultraviolet radiation to which we're exposed. Although reaching only the top layers of skin, damage to skin DNA leads to sunburns and even skin cancers. Protection from UVA and UVB radiation can be obtained with the proper use of sunblock. UVC radiation is a shorter, higher level wavelength than UVA or UVB. It's good at damaging the genetic material of both viruses and humans if they're exposed. While UVB can take hours to cause sunburn, UVC may take only seconds to do the same damage. Fortunately, it's rare to encounter it thanks to the filtering capacity of our ozone layer. Although little UVC radiation reaches us, many artificial sources of UVC are used for disinfection in hospitals, factories, and even airplanes. 
It's not foolproof, however. In the end, the effect varies by wavelength, the amount of organic matter, temperature, and the type of microbe, as well as the distance of the light from the object to be disinfected, shadowed areas, and even dirty lamp tubes. Still, it has the potential to be another tool in the medical woodshed. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, are you medically prepared for the uncertain future? Find out what you need to know in a long-term disaster with a copy of the brand new, greatly expanded fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, available at Amazon or at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Well, hi folks. Welcome to uh, live stream for today. This will be a shorter live stream than usual because it's just one segment of today's show. For those that are catching this video that may not know, I do do a podcast called the Survival Podcast. Today's episode is a pretty cool one. We've got a lot of great folks lined up. We've got Ron Paul and his team with the Liberty Report highlights for the week. Uh, i got Doc Bones and Dr. Ken Berry on totally different subjects. got Tim Toolman Cook talking about uh, battery-powered framing nailers. Got Sean Mills talking about off-grid living and some other stuff. So if you uh, you want to catch the rest of it, there'll be a link in the notes to this video. And that episode on the audio side will go out about an hour after this live stream ends. So with that in mind, my anchor segment for today's show that we're doing here in the live stream is brought to you by a memory from the past. So today I just happened on something that I wrote all the way back in 2018. And it was the difference between the left's bullshit and the right's bullshit. And this is important to understand going into this. A couple different things. Number one, I am not talking about politicians. Not talking about politicians. I'm talking about the average person that classifies themselves as left or right. The average voter, the average person that is in America today that is a product of our educational system that thinks their side is 100% right and the bullshit they use to use mental gymnastics to defend their position, okay? Not politicians. Number two, I absolutely am generalizing, and I think that's okay, too. People are like, you shouldn't generalize. Yeah, you generalize. You generalize. All of you fuckers that say that, you generalize all the time, and there's a reason we generalize. It works. The way I am with generalizations is... I just basically expect what I'm going to expect from a person based on how they describe themselves, how they present themselves, yes, their sex, etc., until they prove me different. When they prove me different, then they are an exception to the rule. That's okay. And if we lived our lives a little bit more that way, a little bit more peacefully, we would generally get things done a little bit better because we'd stop trying to tailor everything to everybody's needs, right? And I'm not talking about whether I'll hire somebody or something like that. I'm just saying in general in dealing with people, you can generally assess somebody pretty quickly, and sometimes they surprise you, and then it's pleasant. And then it's pleasant. So I am generalizing here. The last part before I get into the differences, different does not necessarily mean one is better than the other. And this is such a tribal topic that people tend to hear that even when it's not being said. So I'm telling you right up front, I'm not saying that either side's better because I'm accusing both sides of absolute, 100%, total bullshit. That's never good, okay? So here's the difference, though. It comes down to what happens when they're spouting bullshit and you present facts that are on conflict with their bullshit. And this was true when I wrote it. 
I was challenged a little bit on it, but nobody challenged it with facts or you know hard, concrete examples based on the generalization. You could find one here and there. That's that's finding a unicorn, right? But when you challenge somebody that is a self-described leftist, right, a self-described liberal in our modern society, and I don't mean classic liberalism because I don't know where those guys are. I can't find them. I think we all turned into anarchists and libertarians, but. When, you, know, you know what I'm talking about. You're modern political liberal. They'll say something hysterical, and you'll say, well, actually, here are the facts that contradict the claim that you're making. And when they lose their shit, and when their bullshit goes full bore, you know what they want? They want you silenced, shut down, and shut up. They run away from your facts. They deny your facts are facts. They say stupid shit like, what's your source? And when you give them your source, they say the source is incredible or what have you. And they want you silenced. They cheer when a social media megalith deletes your account or shuts down your account or puts some giant disclaimer over it. They cheer censorship. Okay? What happens when the self-described right-wing conservative Republican mainstream person today presents a big pile of steaming bullshit, and boy, they do it too, and then they are presented with facts that conflict with their belief system. They don't call for you to be censored. And sometimes you get your unicorn that, that loses their shit and screams and runs away. It, it, it happens. But in general, what I find is the right wing tries to defend their bullshit by countering your facts. They try to actually show where you're wrong. They try to actually gather their own information and prove to you you're wrong. And what I have found is it is generally easier to have a debate that can be somewhat productive with somebody from the right than the left. Because the debate actually occurs. It doesn't mean one's bullshit is less deep than the other's. It means that you can actually have the freaking debate. Now, that was true in 2018. I defy you to show me with facts, logic, and reason, right, where that has not become more convincingly true in the past two years since all this COVID crap started. This is, is that not, now again, I wrote this, I wish I could find it now because it kind of came by and then disappeared and I can't find it, right? I wrote this in January of 2018. I actually wrote it on this day, January 20th, 2018, which is why it popped up for me. And... When I read what I wrote back then, and I thought about what we've witnessed, especially in like the last 18 months, is the entire narrative around this bullshit is spiraling out. What it made me think of was that there was plenty of bullshit from the right on this. And I'm, again, I'm not talking about politicians. I'm talking about people, right? General, average, everyday people, voters, people that are addicted to their channel or the other. The right mostly was just as full of shit about the COVIDs as the left. I had plenty of people on the right making total bullshit claims. You know, the number one claim that I heard when I pushed back against anything of the official narrative when all this shit started, I heard so many people say this, left and right-leaning both. I know three ER doctors that I talk to every day. It was interesting to me that everybody knew three Not two, not one, not some guy they went to high school with who went on to medical school or something. Everybody making that claim, new three, that they talk to every day. Like a freaking 
ER doctor in the middle of a pandemic has time to talk to you every day, let alone times three. Total, complete bullshit. However, if you look over the track of time, it is no doubt the case right now that there are four more people that are on the right who are open to the fact that they've been lied to about COVID. And why? Because if you're willing to look at the claims, even if you don't just accept them, then in the end you're going to draw more fact out of it. Now, it's, the, it's absolutely the case that many people cling to their bullshit on both sides. And I think the right is just as guilty of having the desire to cling to their bullshit. And this is where I'm really going to piss people off. I think, in general, people on the left tend to be more weak-minded. They tend to be more weak-minded. Because they're more easily led by emotion. And this has always been a political generalization that kind of fits. And what I mean by that is if you listen to all the narratives that come from the left-wing politicians and bureaucrats and mainstream, it's all feels. It's always about feels. It's always, but we have to do something. You know, sometimes you don't have to do something. Sometimes you can do absolutely fucking nothing and you're better off. In fact, most of the time in the world, if you do nothing, you learn more. And a lot of times, you, maybe you're going to do something, but instead of doing something right away, you have some patience, and you wait, and you wait to see if it's the crisis that you think that it is. And if it is, then you respond appropriately, and you do so more methodically with more information. But when you are led by emotion, and boy, did both sides get led by emotion in this shit because it struck a primal fear. And that's why the right lost their mind into the world of feels as much as the left did in this one, because they got you with something that really works. We all have what I call, and I don't know if I'm the only one that uses this term, I'm the only one I've heard it use it in regard to this bullshit we've been dealing with for two years now, an ancestral memory. We have an ancestral memory of diseases and pandemics that wiped out millions upon millions upon millions of people, because they happened. Like the people that think there is no such thing as a virus. Or, I, I don't have time for you today. I really don't. Go go find a Flat Earth channel and a, we didn't go to the Moon channel and, and leave me alone. I don't have time for that shit, right? We did have pathogens, both viral and bacterial, throughout history that decimated the planet. You know, a, a viral one would be smallpox. A bacterial one would be the bubonic plague, the, the black plague, right? And because that is something that we carry in our in our innate souls is the way I'm going to put it. And if you don't believe we have a soul, you can come up with another like DNA markers or some shit, right? Since we know this and we have this internal knowledge of danger, right? And it's the same reason that you can look at certain things and know they're dangerous, even if you haven't seen them before. Like there's just certain characteristics that like a, an insect will have that like that might bite me and be poisonous, right? Or venomous is more accurate, right? Like we have certain ways that we just identify things. And they took that primal fear and they used it to seduce you into the fact that we needed to do something. However, when the, when the predominant characteristic of the left and the right, the weak-minded feels versus the strong mind that can be manipulated by bending facts to what they want to hear. That's how the right's manipulated. You take a fact and then you bend it and you twist it and you use it to sell a lie. And then you prop it up with a bunch more lies that fit the narrative the person desires to believe. 
So you have a more strong-minded group. And I think generally speaking, again, generally speaking, you have weak-minded leftists and you have strong-minded people on the right. Strong doesn't necessarily mean good, right? You can be stubborn and bullheaded and make the wrong choice, and it actually can be more dangerous than the weak mind. Because then nothing anybody can say will change your mind on that right side of that. But on the left side, if, they're, if the, the person can actually be effectively appealed to with emotion, right? And they're both bad. But I think what happened in this, I think it's pretty clear what happened, is because the right-leaning individual is more prone to saying things like, yeah, you know, you know, you know what, even though I'm scared, uh, look at the data. You know, I put out a short little video yesterday. You guys that are still on all the big social media platforms, I wish you'd share it for me. It's 40 seconds long. And all it is is basically, here's the cases in Texas, Florida, and New York. Three tabs, and I just keep going through them. Right? And they look the same. They have the same spike. So when the person that's on the right is presented with data like that, at first they may let their emotions overwhelm them, but in the end they'll attempt to disprove it. Now, I'll tell you what happens on the right all the time, because I know some of you are starting to say, well, he's saying the right's better. No, I'm not. Often what will happen when you're doing this with somebody on the right, they will, they will at least engage. And then they'll use ad hominem fallacy and attack the source. Instead of saying, what's your source, before they even engage with the facts, they will look at the facts and say, but your source is. Doesn't matter. That is an ad hominem fallacy. So, and that's, that's a really interesting dynamic as well. The left tends toward um, appeal to authority. That is the left's ultimate fallacy. They love appeal to authority, and science as an authority is the authority de jure. Experts say. Everybody agrees. Science is not done by consensus leftists. I'm sorry. But the right, you know, fallacy de jure, the right's lovable fallacy that they love more than anything else in the fucking world is fallacy of authority. They love, or I'm sorry, fallacy ad hominem. If, if Rachel Maddow said it, and she, if you want somebody that's dumber than a fence post, Rachel Maddow is it. But if Rachel Maddow were to say something that was true, it's proof that it's false just because Rachel Maddow or who, Chris Como or whoever the fuck else they have over there on the left and their, their pundits said it, right? Once you can define that the person that said it is someone who generally is wrong, the thing they said must be wrong. And I think that if you think about it, it makes perfect sense that the left is going to be led by emotion and the right is going to be led by logic, right? That that's going to be the case. Now, again, you might say, well, now you stick out for the right again because the right is led by logic. Flawed logic is dangerous. And here's the big thing that y'all need to understand. The people... If the people, I'm sorry, the people that run this shit, the people that run your government, both the elected officials and the bureaucrats, and the people that really run your government, that write the checks, pay the bills, and actually write the legislation through their lobbyist networks, they know everything that I've just said. The, the, the person that would not even disagree with me for one second on this is that person, the elites. They know Every word I've told you is true, and they use it against you. And they take your platforms, like your MSDNC, 
and your your Fox F A U X News, right? Your your Fox News and your your MSDNC and your CNNs. They take those platforms and they use this formula to perfectly divide you, so that the right who claims that they love facts and logic become incapable of using facts and logic, right? Because they must defend what they were told to believe, so they will assemble facts and logic, including flawed facts and flawed logic, to defend that position. The left is easier. I'm telling you, it just is to manipulate and control. All i got to do is show you pictures. Like, if you're on the left, all I have to do is show you pictures of dead people, and I convince you that everybody needs a mask, and everybody needs a shot, and everybody needs a passport, and we need to have lockdowns, and we have to do something. That formula is so simple, and it's so deadly effective. And it's why you, we can't have conversations anymore. You know, I, I, I'm telling you, it's, it's amazing to me how many times I've been challenged by my own audience. Just today I got challenged on my blog, where I published the episode yesterday, because I dared to say, if it was up to me, we would disband public education. Right? We just wouldn't have public education. It wouldn't exist. We would give everybody who pays property taxes, which is everybody that lives somewhere, because you either pay it directly or you pay it for your landlord. If you rent a house for me, you say, well, Jack pays the property taxes. No, you pay the property taxes, dumbass. Do you think I didn't put that into my rental equation? Right. So everybody is paying more for housing because of taxes. That's just the way that the math works. Unless you live under the bridge in a box, you're paying property tax. I guess if you live in government-provided housing, you don't. Other than that, okay? So I said we should do that, and that's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. I haven't given the person long enough to answer me yet, but I guarantee you what I know what the answer is going to be is no. I said, okay, you believe this because you grew up in a system that this has always existed in, so you think you have to have this or the whole world would fall apart. And all of the excuses you'll make, like, but we'll have children that can't read. We have tons of people that graduate high school that can't fucking read. I know I've hired some of them. We already have school districts that, if you do the honest math, have graduation rates under 60% in the United States of America while we're spending tens of thousands of dollars per student. All the horror stories of what would happen already exist. They already exist. And I said, but I'll tell you what. We're not going to hash this out in a comment segment. Come debate me. Come on a live stream on YouTube. We'll pick a third-party moderator and we'll debate. I have made that offer. Time and time again, on so many things, cryptocurrency, hydroxychloroquine, public education, you know what? Goose egg, zero number of people who have ever been willing to debate this at all. At all. And I know what I'm going to get today. Somebody from the flat earth crowd, because we always have a few of those. I'll debate you. I will debate things that are debatable, and I will debate things that have not been adequately debated so far in the sphere of, uh, of the public. There's a guy named Professor Dave. If you want to see debunking of the flat earth nonsense, you can go watch his channel. There's no reason for me to repeat that. Um, and I, I think that's what I want to finish with. There are things not worthy of debate. There are things not worthy of debate. There are asinine claims by people who believe things that are just untrue. They're just not true, and we do not need to go into all of these things 
and engage in debate with people. And, and Ray right now is saying, put up a prize to lure debaters. I, I always thought it was a good idea. And I'm going to tell you what. I was on the verge this year, going into this year. I was going to do a, a fundraiser with some sort of thing, like you can deposit Ethereum with a smart contract so that you know you can get it back, or something like that, so that I could crowdfund enough money to get an actual scientist or government bureaucrat or any of these people on the, we must do something on the side of COVID to debate me, a lowly redneck hippie duck farmer podcaster. And then I saw what Steve Kirsch had. Steve Kirsch right now will give Anthony Fauci, uh, Deborah Bricks, any of these people, $5 million. $5 million to debate. It is not an award if you debate him. And you win by some vote or something that you get the $5 million. You agree to the debate, you show up to the debate, and you engage in the debate by the rules of debate, and you get $5 million. You know what? Zero. If Steve Kirsch can't get somebody to do it for $5 million, bucks, I'm not going to get somebody to do it for a few tens of thousands. right? And, I, and if I'm going to do that, I want somebody with some sort of uh, street cred. right? I don't want some person that can be ad hominem attacked by their own side because they didn't like the way it turned out. Um, yeah, I have not found... You know, and this is Mike saying here, the problem with debate is it risks giving credibility to arguments that otherwise would not deserve it. Think Bill Nye and the Noah's Ark guy. No. No, I, I find that to be a coward's out. I find it to be a coward's out. I think it's fine to say there's things that we don't need to debate, like, <laughs> do we live on a flat earth? Like, yeah. There's there's a Roman statue that way predates Christopher Columbus of I, I don't remember which Roman god it is holding a globe, like this isn't even something that really was whatever everybody ever said it was right we we've known this way longer than history tells us that we've known this, um, but the whole idea that the reason that you won't debate is because it'll give credibility to the other side, that's a coward's out, that's a politician's out. That's what always happens, right? So what will happen is you'll have a politician and his opponent will want to debate him. And I promise you, if the guy that, that's asking for the debate is 20 points down in the polls, the guy that's 20 points ahead will never do the debate. They'll never do the debate. You know, if it's, two, it's a two-party two race, you're into the general election, the guy that's ahead will never, ever concede to the debate. Do you think it's because he doesn't want to give his opponent credibility? No. It's because he's afraid of the debate. Because he has potential to lose. These people are making policies that are being lorded over 330 million American citizens. They're not afraid that they'll give credibility to the other side. They know the other side is credible. I have a, a standing challenge. It's a year and a half old now. To debate any scientist, MD, etc., you name it on the safety and efficacy of hydroxychloroquine and zinc for the treatment and prevention of COVID. 18 months. I gave every concession possible. I said that you can have two assistants. So it's me against three. I said that you get double my time for your statements and rebuttals. I said that they can use the Internet while the debate's going on. I said I will take one page of notes that I will have front and back pre-prepared and one paper to write down things on while the debate's going on. I get that. You get two resources assistants. You get double my time, and you get to use the Internet actively. You can have your assistants using the, the Internet to fact-check me during the debate. Goose egg zero. 
Goose egg zero. And this is, this is the reality. Back to the main topic. Both sides are afraid of facts that are in conflict with their beliefs. We call this cognitive dissonance. The difference is, in general, since the right does tend to work more on fact, logic, and reason than emotion and feels and needs and what we have to do for somebody else, because of that, they're more likely to eventually kind of break free. But most of them won't ever do it. And you know why they won't? Because everything I've told you today is true. 100% is true. And the people that are pulling all the strings... They know 100% that it's true. And you think they're incompetent. You think these people in government, you think these people in media, media that sound stupid to you are incompetent. Some of the ones running their mouth, they actually are because they're doing whatever the hand up their ass tells them to do. But the puppet masters, they're not incompetent. They're very, very good at what they do. And that's the, why the only way you'll ever see anything approaching the truth, and remember this, None of us know the absolute truth. If any of us knew the absolute truth, we'd have enough money to buy Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos both. If you knew absolute truth. But the, the goal is to get as close to the truth and what parts of the truth are meaningful in your life as possible. And the only way to do that is to distance yourself from all of bullshit on both sides and examine data and facts with no preconception about whether or not you're right. No preconception about whether or not you're right. Or if you have one, identify it. I said today to somebody who presented something that sounded really good about Kazakhstan. And I said, do you have facts on this? Because a poorly uh, typed up screenshot of text is not, is not a source. And I want to believe this. And because I want to believe this, I really need a source. And until you get there, as long as you're knee-jerk reacting to things when they are what you don't believe instantly and saying, oh, this is bullshit, and as long as you're sucking in everything that matches what you believe, you'll never break free from the puppet masters. And with that, we've wrapped up my segment for today. So there's a quick little mention of it in there um, about flat earthers and we didn't go to the moon people and all. And it, it, it seems that whenever I do a live stream... These people surface, um, and, and they will surface sometimes when I mention something like the space program or whatever, but they will often surface and come in and be disruptive when we're talking about things that have nothing to do with that. It's like it's their thing. They live for it, and I guess they've gotten tired of being slapped down by scientific people who talk about this, like Professor Dave, and I encourage you to look up Professor Dave and his things that he's talked about with the Flat Earth cults. Uh, but I had one pop up in this, and I'm, I'm, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of it, and I would like something where I can just go, go here and leave me the F alone and have it be mine. I, I'm tired of these people, and so this guy wants to debate me. And he did come back around and say, I will debate you. And you can actually hear some of the exchange if you go listen to this video, because there's like another 30 minutes on it. Because I stood, I stayed there and I answered questions and stuff, and then he came back around a bit. So uh, this guy Jackson wants to debate me on whether or not the earth is friggin' flat. Now, I almost don't want to do this. And I almost don't want to do this because on some level I feel it's beneath me, and I feel it's a waste of my time. I also think, though, it can be fun. 
And so I am going to find a third-party moderator. I've asked Nicole. She wants to do it. I don't know if he'll be okay with that. You might think that it's the deck stacked against him because it's Nicole. I think Nicole would do a great job as a moderator. But if he objects, maybe one of you guys want to be a moderator. I don't know. Um, but we're going to have to have very clear, defined rules, how long we each get to speak, how long we get for rebuttal, etc., And I mean, I want a moderator who's going to do it to me as much as the other side. If you start talking over people, breaking the rules, shut the person down, you know. Um, but I find I, I wanted to talk about this just a little bit here uh, at the end of the show, uh, not dedicate too much time to it, and we'll see if this thing actually happens once we get it set up. He said, I'll be sure to try to clear my schedule for you. It's amazing how things get in the way when people don't want to do a thing. Um, but it just it amazes me that people be, can become this easily influenced by things that are so easily disproven. And it's a phenomenon that we exist in, and it really goes all the way back to the very beginning of today's show, where I talked about the concept of our sacred democracy from Chris Rossini's segment, where this idea that we can invoke this, these terminologies and then people will treat them like some sort of talisman. And so when you have that in society, and we do, clearly, then it can be done with anything, no matter how preposterous or ridiculous that it is. And this is one of those things that is so easily disproven. One doesn't even need to use math and science and physics, all which can be used to disprove this. One needs only use the power of observation with even the most fundamentally limited understanding of, like, you know, maybe second-grade physical science to determine that the Earth is, in fact, a sphere. And this person that wants to debate me said something to the effect of, I like Jack overall, but he's, he's got NASA's blue balls in his mouth. Friends and neighbors, this is what we call the Dunning-Kruger effect, where people are so incompetent in subject matter that they become convinced of their own expertise. I don't claim to be an expert on uh, the globe model of the Earth. I claim to be a person with the capability to observe the most simple fundamental facts and understand that this is the case. But we're going to do this, ye freaking high. It might be a few weeks out because like, I, have, I have more important shit in my life. Like I have to get ready for the anarchopocal watch party and my presentation down there. And I'm not going to let that suffer because I need to you know, debate somebody who probably eats Hot Pockets in his mom's basement. And that's not even fair. I really shouldn't say that, and I'm going to I'm going to apologize for that. I'm going to call this guy an idiot because I think you are an idiot if you think the Earth is flat. I mean, absolutely, I think you are an idiot. He probably doesn't live in his mom's basement eating hot pockets. It's amazed me actually, and this is why it's disturbing to me, and why I think occasionally maybe we should go ahead and have debates like this, controlled debates, not people shouting at each other. Because I have met people who are like 35 years old and have decent jobs and live on their own and have kids and they believe this nonsense. And they'll say, well, I've done the research. And watching YouTube cult leaders tell you a thing and spout out a bunch of words and yell and say the same stupid shit that's easily disproven without attempting to disprove it yourself is not doing research. It's joining a cult, a counterculture. And it's one of the, like, the reason I think it is the most ridiculous, nonsensical thing that people believe is the total number of people that would be required to be in on it. Every commercial pilot that flies an airplane between continents, based on how airplanes work, would have to be in on it. In fact, when you actually do the math, it would almost be the case that in Western society, people educated enough to understand this stuff 
You'd have to have more people in on it than not in on it, and to what gain? Trillions of dollars spent. The, the, the global governments, of the, not global government, the global governments, plural, can't agree on much of anything. They really can't. We have, we have warfare and opposition at every point and place, even among nations that call themselves allies. But the one thing they can all go in on together is telling people that the earth is a sphere when it's actually flat. To what end? What is gained by this? How many people are in on it and how much money is spent on it to what end? It doesn't make any sense. The fact that the moon looks the same no matter who looks at it from what point on the planet can only work with a spherical model. There's so many examples. I don't want to go into this, but God, I just want to know what causes this level of willingness to believe in absurdity. I really do. I want to understand it. So I'm going to debate this clown, and I'm sorry, I will apologize for saying he lives in his mom's basement and eats Hot Pockets. I will not apologize for saying that he is a stupid person in regard to this thing or behaving like a clown, because that's fundamental reality. This should be, if nothing else, entertaining. And I will give you a link to a couple of Professor Dave's videos if you want to be even more entertained. I actually would love to see Professor Dave debate any of these people because I think he's more amusing than I am when it comes to this. And I think I'm pretty amusing. But Dave, dude, I like you a lot because of your ability to be so harsh and so on point at the same time. I'll just say that. If anybody knows Dave, he can let him know that he has a fan in Jack Spirico, at least among this stuff. Anyway, with that, I'm going to go ahead and uh, wrap things up. I don't have an item of the day for you, but I will remind you, if you like the show and the work that we do, you can go ahead and help support us by going to tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. That's where you'll find all my items that I've reviewed. And no matter what you buy, if you start there, you will help support the show and the work that we do. And with that, I will sign off. I will see you tomorrow with an episode of Outback with Jack. But it's going to be in the office with Jack because it's going to be freaking 19 degrees tomorrow. And ain't nobody got time for that. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. You pull yourself up. They keep bringing you down Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around They said you should have a house the American way a Dollar down, a dollar a month and you never have to pay There's a better way to do this Show you a better way You don't have to be Another face in the crowd You don't have to live the way they tell you to Make your own way The others will follow We forget we are what we eat. I don't
there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Nobody up there cares, they're living for 